Well, I hope like me, you sense the Lord is with us this morning. He's here present. He's here to change lives. Ronnie just prayed, commented how we all come from a different place this last week, but wherever we've been, whatever we've been involved in, we're here and the Lord is here and good things can happen. Your life can be reset in another direction or it can be confirmed in what is good. God is present and grace is, grace is transforming. And that's what we want to look at this morning, the transforming power of grace. You know, Jesus didn't come simply to teach a doctrine. I think we all know that. But he taught a way of life. We're to live a certain way of life. There's a path he's set out for us. It's a countercultural path. It's not one that, that people outside the church will follow. And frankly, it's not one that everyone in the church follows, at least not faithfully. But it's a path of well-being. It's the way we can authentically live as Christian people, as people of the kingdom. And if we live in that manner, we can expect the blessing of God. I'm not saying we can expect easy times. I'm not saying we can expect that we'll never suffer. I'm not saying there won't be times when God seems distant. But we can know if we walk in the way set out by Jesus Christ that God will be with us and God will bless us. But there's so many ways we can misunderstand that. And I want to talk about one way we can misunderstand God's blessings and how God responds to our obedience. I want to talk about one way that happens by looking at a parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. But first, we need to figure out exactly where we are. We've been through a study here in Matthew. If you are just with us for the first time this morning, uh, that's what we've been doing as a church. We've been working our way through the gospel according to Matthew. And at this point, we are now in the Judean ministry of Jesus. For a long time, he was in the northern sections, in Galilee, ministering, but now he's making his way to Jerusalem. He's not yet there, but he will be soon. And once he makes his way in Jerusalem, he's facing a cross, and he will triumph over death and the grave in the resurrection. But now we're in this ministry in Judea. And our church has been reading Matthew together, and this last week we read Matthew chapter 20. And so, that chapter is set up by a question that Peter asks in the end of chapter 19. The question is up here. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Peter asks that because Jesus has been laying out what's required to be a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter's, he's very much conscious of everything he and his friends have given up to follow the Lord. So he wants to know, what's the reward going to be? What are we going to get out of it? I mean, isn't it true that if you walk in the way of Jesus, the blessing of Christ will come upon you? I've just said as much. That is absolutely true. But it's easy to misunderstand exactly what that means. So Peter asked the question, what's going to come to us? And the answer to Peter is a lot. Jesus says, 
that you, my 12 disciples, will sit on 12 thrones over Israel. What he means is they're going to have a role of leadership in the kingdom to come. And then he lays out the many blessings that will come to them. And essentially he says, whatever you give up, you'll receive far more in return. So he's talking about reward. You're going to follow me faithfully, you shall be rewarded. But he's not talking about payment. He's not talking about a reward that is earned or merited. When the Bible talks about God's rewards, they're always the rewards of grace. They're in response to what we do, but it's far more than what we do. And in chapter 20, there's an effort made to correct any misunderstandings that people might have. If you look once again at this slide, you've got Peter's question, but then you have in chapter 20 the parable of the workers in the vineyard. We'll come to that in a minute, and you'll see how that turns Peter's concern on its head. And then you have Jesus predicting his passion. Peter wants to know, what will be my reward for following you, Jesus? And Jesus lays out that he is going to a cross. And then... We have Jesus teaching about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. It's not like greatness in the world. It's a whole different thing. It's not a matter of hierarchy, but of service. And he has to say that because the mother of James and John, she comes up to Jesus and she says, listen, can my, can my two sons be at your right hand and left hand in the kingdom of heaven? In other words, can they have the highest place next to you in the kingdom of heaven? She's thinking hierarchy. She's thinking honor. She's thinking reward. And she wants it for her sons. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. And he says that to the two disciples, James and John. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Can you go to the cross I just talked about? Oh, yeah, we can do that, they said. <laughs> they didn't know what they were saying. And so Jesus is subverting this idea of hierarchy and merit when he talks about greatness in the kingdom. And then finally, there's this miracle that takes place, a healing of two men who are blind. And that's really interesting because these two blind men, when Jesus walked by, begun, begin to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And what did the crowd do? The crowd, it says, rebuked them and said, be quiet. In other words, Jesus doesn't have time for you. You're not important enough for him. You don't deserve anything from Jesus. Be quiet. Just keep to your place. But Jesus stops, calls them to him, and heals them. He sees them very differently. My point in all of this is that chapter 20 turns the tables on Peter's question. Peter wants to know all about what do I get? I've made a great sacrifice. What am I going to get, Lord? Will I have a higher place, a better place? What are the blessings? And chapter 20 says, well, you'll be blessed, but maybe not the way you're thinking. So with that in mind, let's go to chapter 20. Let's read this parable of the workers in the vineyard and see what it'll teach us about the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. That last phrase, for many are called but few are chosen, is a misprint. The King James includes that, but it's based on an inferior Greek manuscript and no modern translation has it. So if you've been following in your Bible, you don't see that last phrase. But Jesus says the very end, the first will be last, the last will be first. There is a reversal at work here, and that's what we need to talk about. Now, you read this parable, who is it that you most sympathize with? I know who it is. It's the one I sympathize with. It's, it's the group that got hired first thing in the morning and who worked all day long for a single denarius, which was a typical amount that a day laborer would receive for a day's work. You feel sorry for those people because it's so unfair. Those who came later get the same amount. It isn't right. It isn't just. They grumbled and... You know, generally our sympathies are with them for grumbling. Now, Jesus knew exactly how we would react. He told the parable knowing that we would side with that group because what he wants to do is pull us up short. He wants to change the way we think about God's rewards and about grace and about merit. He wants us to see that God does reward us, but according to his great grace and not according to our merit. That's what he wants us to see. And so in this parable, we need to focus first on the main character, who is the owner of the vineyard. The owner clearly stands, at least in some regards, for God. And so from this owner, we can learn two things about God. Jesus is telling us, first of all, that God is extravagant in his grace. If you get past the complaints of those who work the whole day and you look at the whole parable, this is really obvious. You see, 
day laborers in the first century in Palestine, they lived a precarious existence. In fact, it was more precarious than the slaves of that society lived. So they would be at a central location waiting for someone to come and hire them for the day. And if they didn't get work that day, they didn't get what they needed to feed their families and to survive yet another day. It was crucial to them to get work. And so here's this man who comes and he hires everybody that he needs to go work in his vineyard. But he comes back later and there's still people there. They haven't been hired by anyone. So he hires them. Comes back later, hires more, hires more. Comes back with one hour left in the day and hires yet more. He doesn't need these people. And he sure didn't need to pay them a whole day's wage for what they did. I mean, if you had a business and you hired people you didn't need and you paid them for work they didn't do, you wouldn't stay in business very long. But that's how God treats each one of us. God lavishes his gifts upon us. He rewards us for what we do, but his rewards are so absurdly out of proportion with the pitiful level of obedience we offer that it is clearly God's extravagant grace that's poured out upon us. God is gracious to all and he's unjust to none. That's what this parable reminds us of. But then also, God is sovereign in his generosity. And this is where the problem comes, at least for us, certainly in the parable. Because God doesn't give everyone the same, uh, doesn't give everyone the same amount because they've done the same amount of work. In fact, he's not measuring how much work they've done at all. Instead, what God is doing is giving them according to their need. And so it's not fair. It's not even. It has the appearance of even because he gives everything, everybody the same amount, but it's not fair. But then the vineyard owner's answer to the accusation that he's not being fair is, don't I have the right to be generous with what belongs to me? Can't I be generous to this person without you being envious as you are? The text speaks of an evil eye, and that's just a idiomatic way of saying that you're envious. He says, you're envious of these people because I bless them. You're keeping score and you don't think that's right. But as a matter of fact, you can be sure that when these were first hired, I'm talking about those who worked the whole day, they congratulated themselves. Oh my gosh, I've got another days of work. I am so glad he picked me. I'm going to work this day. I have a denarius. That's great. I'm one of the lucky ones. But now, after they see the blessings that go to others, they don't feel lucky. They feel angry and they feel upset. Now, I want to identify a reason why so many of us are unhappy, even though we're Christians. A lot of us are very unhappy. And we feel like life is unfair, that things don't work for us that it hasn't fallen out the right way. We're discontent because of it. We're ungrateful. And it's because we have lost sight of God's extravagant grace 
And we no longer, or we perhaps never have, truly respected God's sovereignty, that he is God and he distributes his gifts as he will. You see, unless we learn to be grateful for what God has given us and stop complaining and getting upset because it's not what God has given someone else, we will never know what happiness is. We'll never know contentment. Let me give you what I'll call the rule of ingratitude. Here it is. If I am oblivious to God's grace and resistant to God's sovereignty, I will succumb to envy and will live in anger, malice, and often depression. If I'm oblivious to God's grace, resistant to God's sovereignty, I'll succumb to envy and live in anger, malice, and often depression. Let me unpack that just a little bit. So God blesses each one of us richly, beyond our deserving. And if we are oblivious to that blessing and instead we focus on the things we think we ought to have that we don't have, there's a bitterness that takes root in our souls. We get angry with God because of it. It's not fair. I should have this. I mean, it may be a material thing. It might be a talent. I might want to look different. I want to be more successful. There are all sorts of things that I might want, but there's an anger that settles in my soul. If I'm oblivious of God's grace and I resist his sovereignty, I don't see God as God. God should do what I want. God should give me what I want. And he should give me everything he gives to everyone else and more. You'd be okay with more, right? We'd all be okay with more. The problem is the person next to us is keeping score, and they wouldn't be okay with it. So it's got to all be even, totally even. God has to do it my way. God can't be sovereign. If I am oblivious to God's grace in my life and I am resisting God's sovereignty, then as I said, that bitterness enters into my heart. That resentment enters into my heart. It strikes me as unfair. I look around me and I see what other people have and I envy them. I have this anger toward God because it's not fair and I have this malice toward other people because it's not fair. And that's what envy involves. It's, it's this seething anger and this malice. See, Envy and jealousy are not the same thing. Jealousy can be a good thing. Jealousy is where you're trying to protect something that's valuable to you. So you have a relationship with someone, and that's valuable to you, and you're jealous if it looks as if someone's threatening that relationship. That's a good thing. I mean, within reason. Envy, on the other hand, isn't trying to protect what you have. Envy is wanting what somebody else has. And see, when you're envious, there's the anger and bitterness toward God, but there's also the malice toward the other people, and there's so many ways that can show itself. One of our favorite ways is with our words. And, of course, we never advertise what we're doing when we start tearing people down or saying unkind things or, or trying in some way to lower them. 
Lower them in the eyes of others. Lower them in their own eyes. We don't ever say, well, you know what? I really envy this person, so I'm going to take them down. We don't advertise it like that. In fact, whoever admits to envy, envy's one of the seven so-called deadly sins. You look at the other deadly sins, people will, from time to time, admit to them. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I sometimes get a little materialistic. I want things too much. Greed. Or, you know, I admit that I have trouble with lust. Or, you know, go down the list. Wrath is one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, I lose my temper sometimes. We admit to... How many people admit to being envious? There's nothing attractive about envy. It turns so dark and so evil and does such damage, none of us wants to admit it. But we see envy in this passage, and it comes from being oblivious to God's grace in our lives and being dissatisfied with God's sovereignty. What happens then, and what I'm about to say now doesn't come from the passage. This comes from my experience, what I've seen as a pastor and what I've experienced myself as a Christian. That anger toward God and that malice toward others, it can then turn in against us. See, I can turn that anger right in on myself. I can be angry with God for not giving me what I want, but then... Over time, I can start turning that anger on myself for not being what I want. I'm not smarter than I am. I don't have the talents that I want. I'm not as successful as I ought to be. It's my fault. I'm falling short. I'm inferior. See, it turns in on self. And that malice, instead of being turned out on others, can be turned into a kind of self-contempt. And see, when that anger and malice turns inward, that's where the depression comes from. Now, depression can sometimes be a medical condition, but so often it's nothing more than ingratitude working itself out in the ways that I've just described. Some of you may have come across the writings of Thomas Merton. If you haven't and you're interested in deep and thoughtful devotional writing, you might want to look him up. He was a Catholic monk, of all things, in the 20th century. So here I am, a Baptist preacher, uh, recommending a Catholic monk. How is that even possible? The world has changed. But he said something that if if you keep in mind that sometimes depression can be a medical condition, and that I'm taking that off the table, if you keep that in mind, What he says, I think, is true. He says it's impossible to be depressed and grateful at the same time. It's impossible to be depressed and grateful at the same time. For many of us, we're not going to find happiness until we reckon with God's lavish grace in our lives. We stop focusing on the things that we think we need and want while we ignore what God has given We have to acknowledge that, and then we need to acknowledge God's God. And God will treat me as God treats me. God has his purposes. God has his plans. He is gracious to all, but he's not gracious in the same way. And so if I watch you and I start keeping score, I'm never going to be happy. 
There's a reason you are who you are. There's a reason you were born in the family in which you were born. There's a reason you look like you look. There's a reason you have some gifts and not other gifts. It's all to serve the higher purpose of God. Don't look at others and say, I want what they have and I want to be them. Look to your Lord and realize his grace and his goodness and submit to his sovereignty. Let him be God. When you get in that place, you find real peace. You find real peace. And then, of course, we want to emulate God. We want to, we want to be generous to others, kind to others, reaching out to others. That's very, very important. And we should be against any injustice to others. That's crucial. But for us, focus on the gift of God's grace. He's created you with a purpose. Your very lacks are part of what God is trying to bring about. There was a man born blind. He was begging day by day. You can read about it in John chapter 9. He's begging day by day, and, and he was a theological issue for the people who walked by. The disciples asked, why was this man born blind? What, did he sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? You might ask yourself, well, how in the world could he sin if he hadn't been born yet? And the answer is, the ancient Jews believed that a child could actually sin in the womb. So the question is, did he... Did, did he sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? This is obviously a horrible condition. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the power of God could be seen in his life. I don't know how God's sovereignty is working out for you, but I know that where you were born, who you are, how you look, the gifts you have, the gifts you lack, the opportunities before you, the successes and failures, I know is one package that under the sovereignty of God is intended to serve God's purpose and to secure his glory. And if you will look for it, you'll see his blessings are already filling your life. That's the key to happiness, truly. It won't come any other way Let me just add one brief word. And I don't know if this is true for anybody here. This is, this is I'm just revealing myself. Because I look back on my life and I can see times when I've been terribly hard on myself because I was afraid if I let up that I wouldn't get what I wanted or be who I wanted to be. I had to be terribly hard on, almost like, almost like I, I needed a prod, get myself going, to succeed, to achieve, to be better. It's almost like I was trying to leverage an anger about who I was and where I stood to leverage that anger into self-improvement. That is all works righteousness. That is all folly. That is a dead end. God's grace 
is lavish and abundant, accept it. And God is God. He is sovereign. Accept his sovereignty. Live the life he's given you and really live. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you have created each one of us to serve your purpose. And Lord, you have been wildly gracious to us, far beyond anything that we could ever have chosen for ourselves. Sometimes we forget that, Lord, because we focus so much on a particular idol that we, we lose track of everything that you've done. Forgive us for that, but Lord, help us to remember what you have done. And Father, forgive us for the rebellion. Forgive us for the, the self-will that instead of yielding to your sovereign will and living the life you've given us, is constantly grasping at something else. Lord, may we not be satisfied with the self-centered, spiritually impoverished lives we have lived to this point, but may we not be discontent with those things that we cannot change and that you don't intend for us to change. And so we offer ourselves to you now, and we look to you now, to your extravagant grace. In Jesus' name.